This episode of Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast, is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Chiesi is a family-owned, research-focused, sustainable pharmaceutical company accredited with both B Corp and a benefit corporation status. Chiesi is making global changes that benefits patients, providers, and healthcare organizations with forward-looking and impactful initiatives. Chiesi appreciates the integral role that clinical pharmacists play in patient care and are proud to support this community. To learn more, visit chiesi.pharmacytodose.com. Again, that's C-H-I-E-S-I.pharmacytodose.com. Dose.com. The Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast, a partner of the ACCP Critical Care PRN, and I'm your host, Nick Peters. Wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. Now, today's episode is part one in a two-part episode series uh, with one of the most requested uh, clinical topics to cover, and that is glycemic control in the ICU. So part one features Tracy Grews giving us more of an overview on our management. So, you know, we discussed the four landmark trials on ICU hyperglycemia, briefly review some guideline recommendations, review hypoglycemic management, and discuss practical tips and tricks. Now, this won't discuss hyperglycemic emergencies like DKA or HHS, so refer to uh, the previous episode with Janice Choi for a deep dive into that specific patient population. Um, And then we also hint at this during the episode, but part two will feature two pharmacists task force members from the 2024 uh, SCCM guidelines on glycemic control for critically ill children and adults. So Judy Jacoby and Michael Sirimatros uh, will both join uh, that episode will probably come out sometime in March. So keep your eyes peeled for that. But today's episode with Tracy is uh, such a fantastic look into what we've done historically with blood glucose management and how ICU research has influenced this. Uh, plus, as a surgical ICU pharmacist, Tracy shares her tips and tricks to help prevent hypoglycemia, as well as focusing on things like nutrition and communication to assist in our management. So sit back and relax, because here we go. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We are very, very lucky to be joined by Tracy Gruz. Uh, now, Tracy is the SICU Clinical Pharmacy Specialist and PGY2 Critical Care RPD at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland. You can find her on Twitter at TM Gruz, like her last name. Tracy, welcome. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to join you. You know, I think it's this around this time of year, we always ask how are like our students doing who are interviewing for all these things? How are residents doing? Call these the dog days of residency. Uh, Got to check in on our RPDs. How are you doing with interview season? Are things going well? Are you are you surviving? Because for those who don't know, the other side, it can be just a, maybe not as stressful, but it could still be, you know, take a lot out of the days and things. Yeah, absolutely. It's a lot to coordinate. Um, but I think it is very, very rewarding. It's going really well this year. Thank you for asking. That's great. Okay, so we have to get into it. And as I, as we said in the introduction, right, glycemic control in the ICU. This is part one. Um, this has been a an episode in the works for some time, and it worked out in our favor that we had delays and pushed it because obviously those uh, the listeners know from the SECM uh, episodes. We have the glycemic control guidelines featuring a couple pharmacists. So the part one and part two, Tracy and I are going to take a, a trip back. We're going to talk about all the history behind glycemic control in the ICU, talk about kind of a lot of those landmark trials, give tips and tricks, and then uh, two of the of the pharmacist authors are going to talk through and kind of dive into the guidelines. So a little part one and part two. So Tracy, this feels like a... Sim- a very simple but yet very complicated question, but like what's actually the mechanism behind hyperglycemia itself? So for many of our ICU patients, we're talking about stress hyperglycemia in particular, which is elevated glucose in the setting of acute illness. So this can happen when cortisol is released, leading to gluconeogenesis, and that results in glucose synthesis. And then there's also decreased glucose utilization so that the body has a readily available energy source while undergoing this stress response. And then other hormones like catecholamines and some inflammatory inflammatory mediators also play a role in stimulating insulin uh, resistance, all of which can lead to hyperglycemia. And hyperglycemia can be harmful in the ICU because Uh, mechanistically, it can lead to osmotic diuresis, capillary leak, impaired leukocyte function. And then from a clinical outcomes perspective, it's been associated with things like increased infection risk, impaired wound healing, increased ICU and hospital lengths of stay, and even increased mortality in some studies. From what you're describing, um, that explains why this could kind of happen more in the critically ill. Does this mean that Every single patient that comes into our ICU, you're going to see some degree of hyperglycemia? Not necessarily. So I think, you know, this depends on the magnitude of the stress response, which could be very large in a lot of our patients, whether that's due to things like infection or sepsis, shock states, or, you know, maybe major surgeries. Um, and that's also not considering, you know, a potential history of diabetes. So patients may already have insulin resistance and other issues at baseline. Um, but the reported incidence of hyperglycemia in the ICU ranges, uh, but is generally reported as 50% or higher 
Um, so while it may not occur in every patient, it's definitely very common. And I think ICU patients can also have risk factors for hypoglycemia, which is important to point out too. So aside from some iatrogenic factors like intensive insulin therapy or not adjusting insulin when nutrition or medications are adjusted, which we'll talk more about, patients with severe liver dysfunction can experience hypoglycemia because of the liver's role in glucose homeostasis. Uh, Other risk factors are significant adrenal insufficiency, which is related to that cortisol and catecholamine response we talked about as really the driving mechanism behind stress hyperglycemia, Uh, significant thyroid issues like myxedema coma, or even things like insulinomas, which secrete endogenous insulin. So I think, you know, it's possible to have concomitant factors that affect glucose in opposite or even additive ways, which uh, really highlight the challenges of glycemic control in the ICU. Yeah, that's a, a really good point about hypoglycemia. We'll put a we'll put a pin in that because obviously that we're going to when we talk about the studies, that's going to be a, a big piece Um of that. And that's, I think nurses uh, around the world just breathed a huge sigh, huge sigh of relief that we're not going to have to do Q1 blood glucoses for every single patient that, that comes in. So let's kind of get into some of these landmark studies. Um, and we're talking about glycemic control in the critically ill. It's pretty clear. There's, there are clear favorites. There's probably a new one that you would add to the kind of pantheon, but it's a little easier than if you try to pick four ACS studies. So this is nice. Um, <laughs> Let's get back in our time machine. Uh, We're going to go back to the year 1999, right? The amazing Prince album. But how did we manage ICU hyperglycemia prior to like the start of these landmark studies? Yeah, so pre-Y2K, permissive hyperglycemia that didn't necessarily have a consistent upper threshold was accepted because it was thought that excess glucose was beneficial for boosting the body's energy source during critical illness. And so this is kind of a similar concept to what was once early perennial nutrition and overfeeding, where perennial nutrition was actually called hyperalimentation. And this will come into play later when we talk about some of these studies. It always reminds me of a, a really like funny story. Like you said, one of my one of my old uh, attendings, he said, why are you worried about this blood glucose that's 220? They always were in the 300s, right? That was that's their <laughs> argument and things. So um, now before this, right, were there any patient populations that had evidence for improved outcomes? Because I'm guessing this idea stemmed from somewhere. Yeah. So at the time, there were some observational data showing that hyperglycemia was associated with increased morbidity in the ICU. And then in 1995, the Degami trial was published, and this was a multi-center trial that included about 600 patients with diabetes who had an acute MI, so specific patient population. They were randomized to either insulin for at least three months to target glucoses of 126 to 196 milligrams per deciliter or conventional therapy. And these patients had average glucoses of about 160 to 200 or so in the hospital. And they found a lower one-year mortality rate in the insulin group with those lower glucose targets compared to the conventional group. So this was one of the first more robust trials in this specific population demonstrating harm with hyperglycemia, uh, which led to our subsequent trials. 
yeah, our, uh, our Swedish colleagues with the uh, Degami study. So, all right, it's now 2001, the publication of, wait, before we even get into the study here, I got to ask, what do you even refer to this study as? Because <laughs> I asked that because when I was talking about this with a resident this year, I always thought it was just the Leuven one and they had no idea what I was talking about. So Leuven <laughs> one, the Leuven Sikyu, Vandenberg one, maybe something less fun, like the actual title, right? Intensive insulin therapy in critically ill patients. How, what do you refer to this kind of publication as? I also call it Leuven one. So I don't know if we're maybe showing our age there a little, I don't know, <sighs> but I will say in my head, I, I kind of think of this as the OG Leuven trial, if you will. Oh, I like that. So E, like none of the OG Leuven is a really fun one. That we can drop. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So um, let's get in. And what we'll kind of do to break it up is as we kind of go through for the listeners, the, some of these studies, like we do with trials of the weaker things, I'll kind of briefly highlight a few methods and then Tracy will come in with results. And that'll typically be kind of how we talk through a lot of these. So as we're going through the Leuven one study, right, Dutch single center randomized trial in the SICU, enrolled over 1,500 mechanically ventilated patients, a one-to-one randomization to intensive glucose control, meaning 80 to 110, or conventional, uh, meaning 180 to 200, and then they the treatment was the uh, IV insulin infusion. So what, what did this trial ultimately find? So the primary outcome was all-cause ICU mortality, which on adjusted analysis was lower in the intensive treatment group compared to the conventional group. So patients in the intensive group also had lower in-hospital mortality, bloodstream infections, and renal impairment. Uh, And the subgroup of patients in the ICU for over five days had shorter mechanical ventilation duration and ICU length of stay. Importantly, severe hypoglycemia, which was defined as glucose less than 40, occurred in significantly more patients in the intensive group versus the conventional group. And this is a theme we'll continue to see with the rest of the trials we talk about too. So if you were, I think a lot of times, you know, we might call them a skeptic, someone that is maybe a, they're not an early adapter of a lot of things. So if, if, if you're working with this person, or maybe you are this person in the early 2000s, what what would you say in response to the study? Like, what was some of the discussion highlighting, like you had kind of talked about, some of the considerations as to why maybe this shouldn't be like standard of care for everybody? So as you mentioned, this was a single center study in SICU patients and predominantly cardiac surgery as a even more specific subpopulation. And so I think the generalizability of these results to other institutions and certainly to medical or even non-cardiac surgery SICU patients was limited. I think it's also helpful to note that all patients in the study received two to 300 grams of IV dextrose on ICU admission, and that was transitioned mostly to parenteral nutrition. Um, so this is no longer our standard of care for most patients. And again, we'll come into play more when we talk about some contemporary evidence that we have. Well, lucky for you, Tracy, Dr. Vandenberg and colleagues, they heard you, right? And so they then published the Leuven 2 study, or maybe I guess the other one might be the Leuven MICU study. Um, smaller size study, right? The first one was 1,500. This was about 1,200 patients. But MICU patients at this time, instead of the SICU and, and primarily CT surgery, 
but they kept they randomized them to the two same groups: intensive glucose control, eighty to one ten, and conventional, one eighty to two hundred. Same IV insulin infusions to treat. So lots of same things in those design. What about outcomes and results? So the results from Wuven One were not replicated in this medical population with no difference in in hospital mortality, which was their primary outcome, or mortality in the ICU or at 28 or 90 days. The intensive insulin group did have less AKI, earlier mechanical ventilation weeding, and shorter ICU and hospital lengths of stay. But similar to Leuven 1, that was at the expense of more hypoglycemic events in the intensive group. Yeah, kind of like what you were saying, right? Even though, you know, they heard you and tried to design this study the best they can to address some of those limitations and things, a lot of those same things, if you thought them for the first trial, the second trial did not give you warm and fuzzies and make those those uh, thoughts kind of go away, right? And then they even kind of, at that time, right, the real skeptics, that's when they start doing meta-analyses, right? Showing different results. You had some RCTs, that maybe didn't show the same morbidity and mortality improvements. So then whenever there's a question that needs to get answered, the ANZIX colleagues come to our rescue every single time. Our uh, Australian and New Zealand amazing research colleagues, they also agreed that we needed more of a definitive answer. And thus the 2009 nice sugar trial. So it broke the Leuven mold. So, as we could, as we think about, we talked about Leuven one and Leuven two. What are some of the biggest differences in design with the Nice Sugar trial compared to the previous two? Nice Sugar was a multi-center randomized control trial at over forty hospitals, so much larger uh, group there, and included over six thousand patients from both medical and surgical ICUs. So as you mentioned, I think a really nice example of an intervention being assessed in a much more robust way compared to the Lubin studies. And then uh, similar to the other studies, patients were randomized to intensive therapy with uh, glucoses of 81 to 108 or conventional therapy with a goal of less than or equal to 180. And to achieve that, an insulin drip and standard treatment algorithm were used. A well-designed study, and you clearly, it's almost like they sat down and was like, all right, what are the 15 things that we dislike or have questions about? And we're going to design this study with that as our basis and going from there. You know, huge study, like you mentioned. Um, now, big differences in design, also big differences in results, right? Like, what did they find with the Nice Sugar trial? They found that more patients in the intensive control group died within 90 days compared to the conventional group. And this increased mortality incidence in the intensive group was also demonstrated after adjusting for some predefined baseline risk factors. And thinking of some of those other secondary outcomes that the Wuven studies looked at, there was no difference in ICU or hospital length of stay, duration of mechanical ventilation, new organ failure, including renal replacement therapy initiation, or positive cultures. There were, once again, significantly more hypoglycemic events with glucose of 40 or lower in the intensive therapy group. 
So since this publication, the results of this study have really served as the basis for quite some time for avoiding intensive insulin goals in the ICU. And then, you know, the the nice sugar trial was certainly groundbreaking in and of itself. But then you'd have what you'd probably argue is one of the most important post hoc analyses. This actually, if we do root cause analysis of why we have 800 of these now, it might be because of the nice sugar trial because they they were researching the risk of death with moderate and severe hypoglycemia. So Tracy, what did they ultimately find? Yeah. So because there were these higher mortality rates in the intensive group, it was hypothesized that that was due to hypoglycemia. So this post hoc analysis was intended to determine whether there was an association. It found that patients who experienced moderate hypoglycemia with glucose of 41 to 70 were at almost one and a half times the risk of mortality versus those who weren't hypoglycemic. And those with severe hypoglycemia, so that was glucose less than or equal to 40, had over two times the risk of mortality. And for context, I think it's important to point out that over 80% of patients who were moderately hypoglycemic were in the intensive therapy group, and over 90% of patients with severe hypoglycemia were in that group as well. So this analysis clearly demonstrated the association of hypoglycemia and mortality in ICU patients. So we have what would be considered a a more higher quality study evaluating what happens with those controls, what happens with different blood glucose targets, right? Tight versus a little more liberal. But looking at those three studies, thinking of like, you know, you're rounding, right? I'm rounding. We're in our ICUs. Out of those three studies, which one more reflects like what our practice actually is like at the bedside from like an external validity perspective? So I think nice sugar was the one that solidified avoidance of intensive insulin control in most ICU patient populations. And then especially with the post hoc analysis, it really was a call to attention of explicit harms of even moderate hypoglycemia. So I think, you know, we're more cognizant of trying to avoid hypoglycemia and promptly recognizing and treating it if it occurs. I think, you know, all of these studies were highly protocolized. There was a lot of training and uh, standardized algorithms that were used. So I think there are still, um, you know, limitations in applying these uh, exact protocols potentially to um, different institutions. Uh, But in general, I think, you know, nice sugar, again, much more generalizable compared to Lubin. This episode of Pharmacy to Dose is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Providing innovative pharmacologic therapies for over 85 years, Chiesi is committed to supporting the clinical pharmacist community and the patients you serve. To learn more, visit chiesi.pharmacytodose.com. Then what we have, you know, our, uh, the authors from the Leuven studies, they're attempting to do what few in medicine, sports, or even Hollywood can do, that's a three-peat. So in this case, that would be three studies focusing on a specific intervention, all showing a benefit. But, you know, we're talking about the, the, the next kind of trial is the TGC-FAST study. But I think before we even get into it, I think the question is, why does this even exist? We just went through it, and I would argue we have pretty good evidence that what we're doing is probably right. So why is this study not necessarily a me-too study? 
Yeah. I mean, what can we say? Vandenberg is back at it again. Uh, I, I will at least say the perseverance is uh, unmatched. But, um, you know, some concerns with nice sugar were that the high rates of hypoglycemia may have been attributed to aggressive insulin infusion titrations, along with the early use of uh, early perennial nutrition in, in these earlier studies that we touched on. So evidence since nice sugar has shown that early PN hasn't been associated with improved clinical outcomes, but has been associated with harm like infection. So the TGC FAST authors wanted to reevaluate some of these issues using an insulin infusion adjusted with a quote unquote high performance computer algorithm. High performance is uh, is a key marker there. Um, so let's let's talk about this for a sec, right? So uh, multi center key difference, right? From the first two single center like uh, hospitals, multi center prospective RCT. Um, over 9,000 patients. So huge studies, right? If you think about it, the, the, the first three studies combined is how many patients are in this study. Um, and they randomized ICU patients to that intensive control, 80 to 110, or why would we have the same control in all of the studies, right? Liberal meaning 80 to 215 in our blood glucose control groups. So kind of more similar to nice sugar than that original Leuven 2 study. So when you think about outcomes and results, Tracy, is this like fellowship of the ring, really good findings, a great ending, or is this like Godfather 3, not so good findings, we don't acknowledge it? (laughs) I think this study is good for us and maybe not so good for Vandenberg. And the reason for that is uh, the primary outcome was length of time that ICU care was needed, which did not differ between groups. There were also no differences in 90-day ICU or hospital mortality, new infections, or mechanical ventilation duration, uh, though severe AKI, new renal replacement therapy, and biomarkers of cholestatic liver injury were lower in the tight control group. Astonishingly, the severe hypoglycemia incidence was 0.7% in the liberal group and only 1% in the tight group. So this study did include a larger number of patients, about half of whom underwent cardiac surgery, which is important to note, and they incorporated contemporary nutrition practices. So uh, early enteral nutrition was initiated, if able and then parenteral nutrition was withheld for seven days in those who couldn't receive enteral nutrition. And so I think, you know, while the software and algorithm that was used was very effective in mitigating hypoglycemia, I think that those methods of this highly controlled study would not be able to be replicated consistently in the real world, at least not yet. And so unfortunately for our friend Vandenberg, I think this is just more evidence to suggest that even in the absence of hypoglycemia, there is no benefit with or role for tight glucose control in the ICU. That's a really, really great point to end on because that's exactly right. That was one of the big takeaways from the earlier trials was that the harm came from hypoglycemia and maybe there was a benefit and it was shadowed by that what was happening. And this study showed clearly with such a low rate, high percentage of, of patients in there, that's probably not the case. 
So yeah, if you if you have the logic insulin computer algorithm, you probably can get a little more targeted on your blood glucose. You have the you know the specialized trained nurses that they've that they've had. Um, so ironically, we just sped through twenty three years of research into hyperglycemia in the critically ill. So. From 1999, we're back, 2024. What actually is our recommended target blood glucose range for ICU patients? So for quite some time, the general target was 140 to 180 based on findings from Nice Sugar and some of the other evidence we reviewed, which was incorporated into uh, guidelines like SECM 2012 and recommendations from the American Diabetes Association. More recently, the SECM 2024 guidelines suggest against a lower glucose target of 80 to 139 compared to a higher target of 140 to 200. So I know that pharmacist panel members extraordinaire, Judy and Michael, will be coming on the podcast soon to talk about this uh, in much more depth, but they note that TGC FAST was published after their last literature search. Um, and, you know, while the liberal group's uh, upper glucose threshold in that study was 215, based on the results that they've published, it looks like the average glucoses on, you know, a day to day basis were not close to that 215 threshold. So I wouldn't advocate for targeting any higher than 200 per these guidelines. And I am curious on the discussion of the 200 milligrams per deciliter threshold versus 180. So hopefully that will be a question that Judy and Michael can give us some insight on. Writing down as we speak, Tracy, that's a great, (laughs) that's a great idea. Um, Now, one, one thing that I think enters some of our minds is does, does having a past medical history of diabetes impact your goal at all? Would they benefit from a change in that target? Aside from that Dagami trial with patients with diabetes and MI, In the other studies we've talked about so far, about 15 to 20% of those patients had a history of diabetes, and there was no difference in mortality in that subgroup of patients in the intensive versus conventional groups. There have been a couple other relatively recent trials, Lucid and Controlling, that have evaluated patients with diabetes and found higher rates of hypoglycemia in intensive control groups versus liberal, and no difference in other patient-centered outcomes. Uh, So the new SCCM guidelines don't provide a recommendation on targets in patients with pre-existing diabetes due to inadequate prospective data, but they did comment uh, that in their meta-analysis that intensive targets had a potential signal for increased mortality in patients with diabetes. So I do think future research could potentially explore even more liberalized goals in patients with diabetes especially those with uncontrolled diabetes in particular. I think a lot of us who have like been out in practice and you, you, if, if hyperglycemia is one of the topics you discuss, you read the Vandenberg study, you go through those supplementary materials. And frankly, you're just jealous of those nursing ratios, clearly specialized training and materials that they have and receive. So when we think about having like a practical or more kind of pragmatic approach to hyperglycemia management, what are some tips or tricks that, that you have for us? So as you mentioned, these studies are certainly well-designed and serve as the basis for what our glucose targets should be. 
But I think it's important to highlight that because they all have the same strategy of utilizing an insulin infusion in that highly protocolized manner, it doesn't give us insight into sub-Q insulin regimens, which, you know, arguably are more commonly used for a lot of patients at many institutions. And so we're left with knowing maybe what glucose range to target, but not necessarily how to achieve that. In general, I think insulin plans are and should be very individualized and frequently reassessed, but we can use a systematic approach with some practical strategies. So recommend avoiding all oral antihyperglycemic agents, and I would argue non-insulin injectables too acutely in the ICU since they're not easily titratable and adverse effects like hypoglycemia can be more pronounced in critically ill patients who have less physiologic reserve than when they may be taking these medications at home. Uh, For general insulin strategies, we have several options. Uh, Correctional or sliding scale insulin utilizes rapid-acting insulin like Aspart or Lispro and is reactive. So the higher the glucose, the more units will be given. I think that this can be utilized alone for patients who just surpass the threshold for insulin initiation, uh, which is greater than or equal to 180 in the new guidelines, uh, and those patients who have mild hyperglycemia, or in addition to other scheduled subcute insulin orders to supplement additional units as needed. Most institutions have different sliding scale intensities like low, medium, or high. And so one practical tip to consider is the difference between these scales based on your institutional protocol, because there may be a point where increasing sliding scale insulin intensity alone may not be sufficient to address more moderate to severe hyperglycemia, because maybe that translates to only a one or two unit difference between those scales depending on the patient's glucose readings. And then for patients with more moderate uh, hyperglycemia or hyperglycemia that's persistent despite sliding scale, they may benefit from scheduled subcute insulin. So nutritional insulin usually is using rapid-acting insulin scheduled around mealtime. So three times a day with meals and patients tolerating a regular type diet or bolus tube feeds or Q4 hours scheduled, for example, for patients on continuous tube feeds or continuous PN. Insulin and PN can also be considered as a form of nutritional insulin as well. And I think it's very important to keep in mind that patients should not receive nutritional insulin if they're not receiving nutrition. So, you know, if they're MPO or if nutrition plans change, uh, the insulin plan has to change too, which we'll um, talk about some more examples of. And then intermediate or long-acting insulin can be considered for patients who are on insulin at home, certainly for type 1 and also for type 2 diabetes, or if glucoses are uncontrolled despite sliding scale insulin alone and their NPO, so they can't get nutritional, or maybe they're on nutritional and sliding scale if they're receiving a diet. I think some kind of general tips here. If patients with diabetes are on insulin at home and they are NPO, which commonly happens in the ICU, we can consider reducing their long-acting insulin dose. I usually cut it in half as a general rule of thumb when they're NPO. And then also when thinking about the total daily dose of insulin, for most ICU patients, I'm very conservative with how I split that dose between basal 
or long acting and bolus or rapid acting insulin. So I usually follow about a 30% basal, 70% bolus split for most patients because, you know, like we say for other medications, we can always give more, but we can't take it away, especially long acting insulin, which kind of locks us into that plan for 24 hours. So being conservative in our estimates and remembering that acute hyperglycemia is preferable to hypoglycemia is another pragmatic strategy. And then, you know, I think the last thing to consider uh, with long-acting insulin is what may happen to patients without diabetes who get initiated on this in the ICU, um, you know, once they go home. So this, of course, can't always be avoided and maybe their stress response and other factors will be lessened at that point. But it's just something to be mindful of if there are potentially appropriate opportunities to discontinue their glargine once they no longer need it. And then lastly, as we've discussed with all these studies, an insulin infusion could also be used instead of sub-Q insulin in any of these cases. Those are, those are unbelievable points. I want to go back and highlight two of them. Number one, I was feel vindicated when in a, you answer a question that doesn't really have tons of evidence, the 30, 70 rule. That's what I do too. So I felt very happy with that. <laughs> I don't know if you saw my smile, but then the other thing that I thought was a really good point in today's era is the non-insulin injectables, right? Like those GLP ones, right? That people may be on, not only could it maybe cause issues with blood sugar, gastroparesis and things. So that's a really good point to think about. I think all of us, especially who are practicing nice, you're pretty familiar with orals by, right? We don't like those. Um, but the, the other injectables is uh, a really, a really good point. Um, now I think in your opinion, right? Because if there was a, I want to be clear, if there was a right answer, right? We would, this is, we would be doing it all one specific way, but in your opinion, what would you say is the safest way to treat hyperglycemia and knowing that it'll probably be, it depends. What are some factors that could improve or decrease kind of the safety when we're, when we're using them in these situations? Yeah, I think this is the million dollar question for a lot of us as clinicians. And I agree, there's really no overarching or one size fits all answer. Uh, I think for evidence in the 2024 SCCM guidelines, uh, insulin infusions achieved target glucoses more often than sub-Q insulin, but had increased hypoglycemia episodes based on their analysis. And so, um, you know, overall, this didn't translate to a difference in mortality, ICU or hospital length of stay, or infections. So from a clinical standpoint, I think that supports that tailoring the decision to individual patients and their current status is reasonable. I think practically speaking, the benefits of sub-Q insulin are certainly decreased resource utilization, including monitoring and nursing workload, which are very important, and also the ability to downgrade patients' level of care to IMC or floor status if they're potentially close to that transition. Then downsides of sub-Q insulin include, you know, it's less titratable, potentially less predictable than an insulin infusion especially considering factors that can affect sub-Q absorption, things like edema, vasopressor use, or just decreased perfusion in general. And then as repeated injections, it's also much less comfortable for patients and can be disruptive to their sleep-wake cycle. And, you know, these patients are already at risk of pain, agitation, delirium from a lot of other factors. 
So I think based on those pragmatic strategies we talked about, if, you know, going through those considerations and based on your clinical judgment, you'd expect sub-Q insulin to be safe and effective, I do think that's a reasonable strategy for many patients. And that's how I manage many of my patients' hyperglycemia in the ICU. A couple examples of patients that I would have concerns about using sub-Q insulin in and would preferentially use an infusion in are those with severe hyperglycemia. So getting back to that example, you know, patients with glucose is, you know, well into the high 200s, 300s or higher. Um, Those who have rapidly fluctuating or maybe significantly opposing factors that are impacting glucose, where I may not have a good sense of estimating their needs or adjusting their regimen. And then patients with a high severity of illness, since our margin for error is just simply smaller in those patients. I think um, for the other question about what can improve or decrease uh, the safety of insulin, you know, as a reminder, this is considered a high alert medication. Um, So I think for things that improve safety, using institutional protocols with standardized order sets, which are then reassessed with a quality improvement process to evaluate not only their efficacy, but importantly, safety and rates of hypoglycemia is important. I think all ICU patients, probably in general, and definitely those ordered for insulin should also have hypoglycemia protocol orders placed uh, if possible, you know, if that's a nurse-driven protocol at your institution. Frequent glucose checks are also important. So the SCCM guidelines suggest at least Q1 hour monitoring in patients on insulin infusions during periods of glycemic instability. And for patients on sub-Q insulin, uh, most are receiving Q4 hour checks, um, at least at my institution, if they're on continuous enteral or parenteral nutrition. Uh, frequent reassessment of all of those fluctuating factors that contribute to glycemic control is also very important. You know, did we hold tube feeds or are we DCing or weaning steroids, in which case we may need to reduce our insulin requirements? And then there are a lot of helpful ISMP best practices for optimizing safe sub-Q insulin use with a lot of operational considerations for institutions and clinicians to consider incorporating. I think to round this out, things that decrease safety from a clinical standpoint are aggressive insulin dosing or estimations or calculations as opposed to being more conservative like we talked about. Uh, not adjusting the insulin regimen when those factors that we mentioned change, uh, and inaccurate glucose readings potentially. So we talked about uh, variability with sub-Q absorption in certain situations, which could impact readings, and then errors with point-of-care glucose devices themselves or with using capillary or finger stick sampling uh, versus Uh, arterial or venous blood are also some considerations there. Yeah, that's a really well said because there's, it really is patient specific because, you know, to me, it's hard to define critically ill truly, right? But like, it feels like the more sick you are, the more likely that I'm not going to to use anything sub-Q that hangs around. You're going to want to have some more flexibility. And I'm sure you know this better than anybody working in the surgical ICU, right? They may have a diet and you want to give them the long acting at nine and then plans change. and They want to take them to the OR at four, right? And like Mm -hmm. how quickly some of those, some of those things can change. And then, um, 
you know, you also brought out all the kind of differences with, you know, sub-Q insulin is such a broad, a broad umbrella because is it, are you using Lantus? Are you using just your short acting in response to tube feeds? Are you doing your NPH, your regular, you know, there, there's many different ways you can do it. It's to me, I actually think it's funny when people feel so strongly like their one way is like the right way of, of managing like the hyperglycemia, especially with sub-Q things. Um, now, the first studies that we talked about, those clinical studies, they got all hyperglycemia, got a lot of the, the publicity. That's what we started here with. But just like with the nice sugar trial, right, it feels like hypoglycemia is kind of like the MVP, the under-recognized um, part of all of this. So you talked about some of the risks associated with the hypoglycemia. Um, but in terms of treatment, what's our general management strategy if – because even the best case scenario, patients are going to experience hypoglycemia for, for one reason or another. Like it's, it's inevitably going to happen in your unit. Yeah. I think in general, timely recognition and treatment is really key here. I think institutions differ slightly on their exact strategy. And, you know, sometimes it also may depend on drug shortages, which we are currently facing. So I'll share our nurse managed protocol as an example, but I think this can be, you know, kind of more broadly applied as well. Um, So I think a a glucose reading of 70 or less should trigger prompt management in the ICU. If patients are alert and can take PO, we have some guidance for fast acting carbs in the form of juice or pop. And for the record, our protocol says soda, but as a Midwesterner, I firmly stand by pop. And so the majority of our ICU patients may not be alert or able to take PO even prior to a hypoglycemic episode. And I think this is really important to note uh, that our patients wouldn't be able to endorse classic hypoglycemia symptoms, things like lightheadedness, irritability, hunger, et cetera, which again, highlights the importance of frequent glucose checks. So for most of our patients, uh, we'd utilize dextrose IV we give 12.5 grams if dextrose is 50 to 70 and 25 grams if it's less than 50. And then we repeat a glucose in 15 minutes and repeat dextrose doses as needed. If glucose is still 70 or less after two dextrose IV pushes, we would then hang dextrose containing fluids and continue with that increased frequency of glucose checks. And with all of this, I think it's really crucial to evaluate these patients' insulin or antihyperglycemic regimens at that point and any other contributing factors to try to mitigate any future hypoglycemic episodes. Yeah, that's really important. You know, if you're on rounds and they, they give the, the what their blood glucose range has been over the last 24 hours but forgot to say that they needed, five, you know, hypoglycemia treated five times, you know, that's obviously going to have your have your mind spinning another way and uh drug shortages yeah let's knock on knock on all the wood here um but i like that you highlighted because essentially uh the lower it gets the more aggressive you're going to be but just like so many other things you don't you want to make sure you've stopped the trend right so you don't want to see it you want to make sure you're quickly monitoring you don't want to give someone their sugar 68 give them 12 and a half oh, it's fine, we'll check them in four hours, but meanwhile, you caught them on the downslide. So I think that's a really good point, not only highlighting the treatment, but just as important, the monitoring and follow-up um, and looking at you know all the different factors and stuff. Um, okay, so 
when you work in the ICU long enough, I think you get like a, a spidey sense or like a sixth sense, you know, you could see things, you can almost predict, residents are like, how can you, it's like you, you predicted what was going to happen. How could you do that? Right. It's just, you've seen too much. And you see things that you want to start to intervene on with hyper or hypoglycemia. So we're going to think of it from kind of three big kind of pillars. And one of the most important ones, and I like when you were talking about hyperglycemia, you led with nutrition. Nutrition so important with our blood glucose control. Thinking from that perspective, what are some things that can cause hyperglycemia, maybe increase a patient's risk of hypoglycemia from that nutrition perspective? Yeah, Uh for hyperglycemia, really, it's any time that we increase caloric and specifically carb contents in patients' diets. So some examples of this are initiating tube feeds and increasing tube feeds to goal, initiating perineal nutrition with dextrose and advancing that dextrose to goal, or using non-carb controlled diets or tube feed formulas with higher versus low or more moderate carb content can also contribute to hyperglycemia. And then nutrition-related changes that can cause hypoglycemia, especially if insulin isn't modified accordingly, include NPO status when, you know, they're not having any nutritional provision, any fluctuation in nutrition status, especially when intake is being reduced. So a patient who's receiving nutrition and then becomes MPO, which is common in my SICU patients who are in and out of the OR. Uh, and that can happen for a lot of other reasons in the ICU as well. Uh, or interruption in perineal nutrition could lead to a rapid decline in dextrose intake. Another example is maybe expecting to advance someone's diet, but not being able to do so. So anticipating that tube feeds will be advanced to the goal rate at set intervals, but perhaps the patient isn't tolerating that and they're still rece receiving trickle tube feeds at 10 mLs an hour. And the patients are at even higher risk of hypoglycemia if they're receiving scheduled insulin. And again, it's not modified based on these nutrition changes. So for example, if a patient is MPO at midnight for surgery the next day, DCing their nutritional insulin and halving their glargine dose would be an adjustment that I'd consider. Let's look at the MAR and the EHR. And what about from the pharmacotherapy side of things? What are, what are drugs um, or medicines either started or stopped that kind of will uh, put a red flag up that's like, you know, something that could influence our blood glucose? I think the big one, medication-induced hyperglycemia, something that we as pharmacists will have a keen eye for. The biggest class that stands out uh, that can acutely cause hyperglycemia is corticosteroids. I think some medications like epinephrine or our somatostatin analogs like octreotide mechanistically can increase glucose, though I think there are more limited data on the actual impact of that clinically. Uh, and then there are other medications that have some longer-term metabolic effects, but we don't often see an acute impact necessarily with those in the ICU. I think another common question that comes up that's related to the MAR is the impact of dextrose-containing fluids, including those as medication diluents, and whether switching to something like normal saline would be helpful if possible. So, you know, maybe there's a continuous infusion for a medication in D5W running at 20 mLs an hour, 
D5 is five grams of dextrose per 100 mLs. So in our example, that'd be 24 grams of dextrose per day. So it's not nothing, but I think it's worth doing the math to see whether there'd be a benefit in switching the diluent. Most times for me personally, I think the effort and potential confusion of that outweighs the impact that it'd have on glucose, but it depends on what the patient's ends are and how uncontrolled their glucose is. And then I think Lastly, as a general strategy, it's also important to verify that medications are actually being given and when. So maybe a patient is ordered for scheduled sub-Q insulin, but it's inadvertently been held for the past two days for some reason. And so having up-to-date information on actual administration will make a big impact when creating and modifying these plans. I love that you highlighted that example of the changing a complete drip for literally one gram an hour of dextrose because <laughs> logistically, you're going to change that order. Ivory is going to call you. Tracy, are you sure you meant to put this in D5? You know, mm-hmm. all that you're, all that stuff's going to happen. It, mm-hmm. Yes. Sometimes the juice is not worth the squeeze. Sometimes we try to do too much. And then, you know, you mentioned with the epinephrine. I think sometimes those patients are just so sick that, you know, they're just going to be hyperglycemic, you know, mm-hmm. regardless. Um, okay. So talked about nutrition, talked about kind of pharmacotherapy in the MAR. The last piece I think this is kind of one of those that's kind of undefined. You don't necessarily see it somewhere. I'd argue it's probably the most important thing. Talk about how important communication is with the team, especially thinking of the bedside nurse. And what are some things or some common things that you're communicating that can really stop problems before they actually hit the patient? Yeah, I agree. I think communication is so important, you know, kind of as a corollary to checking the MAR to see if ordered medications were actually given. We could come up with the most optimal hyperglycemia plan ever, but if it's not ordered accurately and as intended, and importantly, if our nursing colleagues aren't clear on how to implement that plan, you know, at the end of the day, the patient may not benefit from the management that we've proposed. I think some common questions come up around administration comments in insulin orders. So, you know, confirming that we don't want to hold long acting uh, insulin potentially. I think sometimes, uh, you know, that does just require confirmation with the nurse. Uh, If patients are MPO, potentially we've already reduced the dosing. Maybe we've already halved the dosing like we talked about in our example. Um, And so kind of just closing the loop there. Sometimes, though, you know, I would say many times, actually, nursing colleagues are the ones who identify these changes in, you know, these different factors that affect glycemic control and are the ones to actually, you know, be proactive and ask me about it. And so I always very much appreciate their input and, you know, having them ask questions to clarify. And so I think being proactive and really clear in our communication and making sure everyone is on the same page is crucial. Yeah, that that kind of goes with the example of like there there's there's no dumb questions, there's dumb assumptions. And you'll, you know, uh if someone asks you a question that you may think is simple, right? And you kind of blow it off, they're not gonna they're not gonna feel comfortable telling you, hey, hey Tracy, the sugar just went from two eighty to one twenty, right? No one's getting alerted. That's not a critical anywhere, but obviously a problem. So um communication I think is so, so key. And that is, I mean, honestly, we're talking about blood glucose, but for, for learners and, and new career pharmacists, 
the best way to success to having a successful unit or practice is getting the nurses on your side. And the best way to do that is communicating, figuring out what you can do to help them. So that's a really, really good point. Glad we got to highlight that. Um, well, Tracy, this has been an absolute masterclass talking about hyperglycemia and the critically ill. How did we get to where we are? And kind of most importantly, tips and tricks, things you're thinking of. What are some big picture take-home points if you want the listeners to kind of go away from thinking about kind of glycemic control and management in the critically ill? I think number one, we've talked a lot about these multifaceted and dynamic factors that, you know, impact glucose in critically ill patients. And I think, you know, here I'd just really like to point out that pharmacists are uniquely positioned within our teams to be able to consider all of these factors day to day. And so we can make a really big impact on managing patients' glycemic control in the ICU. I think uh, another point, it's important to be systematic and overall conservative when creating or modifying insulin plans for these patients, recognizing we can always give more insulin and that hyperglycemia is favorable to even moderate hypoglycemia due to the harms associated with that. And then lastly, I think it'll be interesting to see future research on the utility of more specific or individualized glucose targets in certain patient populations, you know, maybe potentially different ways to report or target glucose like time within goal range, and also the role of technology and informatics, like with continuous glucose monitoring or, you know, advanced decision support tools and these high performance computer algorithms. So hopefully more exciting information to come so that we can continue to optimize glycemic control in our patients. Yeah, a lot of a lot of things of taking some of these things and figuring out what's the best fit line for your patients, your unit, your health system, what have you. Um, another huge, huge thanks to Tracy. Uh, listeners, reach out. Uh, let her know how awesome this was uh, at TM Gruz. Tracy, uh, appreciate your expertise, knowledge, all during, literally, listeners, she's doing this during interview season. That's how much she wanted to pass along <laughs> this, this knowledge. So, Tracy, we appreciate you very much. Thank you so much for having me. I had a blast. Hope you all enjoyed that uh, as much as I did. Lots to learn uh, here uh, certainly from Tracy. So remember, reach out to her, uh, let her know what an awesome job she did. Um, and then at pharmacy to dose, uh, if you need to let me know, Oh, uh, Tracy's handle at TM Gruz G R U C Z. Um, so at pharmacy to dose, uh, Twitter or X, Instagram, TikTok, all the things. Uh, if you want to reach out via email pharmacy to dose at gmail.com or via the website pharmacy to dose.com. Some very fun episodes in the works, friends, so uh, get excited. There's going to be some some really good things on the horizon here. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast. The Critical Care PRN optimizes drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that is critprn.accp.com.
Podcast provides general information only. Does not offer individualized medical or professional healthcare services, including pharmaceutical advice. The contents and materials in the podcast are not intended to be a substitute for inpatient pharmaceutical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Use of the contents and materials on the podcast does not constitute a pharmacist-patient relationship. As a result, the information in and materials linked to this podcast are applied at the user or patient's own risk. Users and patients should consult their physician or personal healthcare professional. Users or patients should not ignore or delay seeking care because of something they heard on this podcast. In case of an emergency, the user or patient should contact their physician, call nine one one, or go to the nearest medical emergency facility. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests and should not be interpreted to reflect the official position or policy of ACCP or the Critical Care PRN. ACP and the critical care period disclaim any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or any other damages, including without limitation, loss of profits arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on, or inability to use the podcast, its contents, and materials.